if something happened in Asia, we need to have everyone's support in Asia. So we need to change our posture in Japan. We need to go more global. We need to pay more attention to global security. And I think we need to develop some kind of new NATO type organization. Welcome to the second episode of our Thought Leadership podcast series, Growth Track, where we focus on growth opportunities across Asia. I'm Justine Moss, and thanks for your company. Our Growth Track is SGX Group's new podcast series, where we focus on investment and growth opportunities across Asia, and by bringing together thought leaders from the global financial marketplace, as well as politics and economics, we hope to promote greater understanding of markets today and also shape ideas for tomorrow. Today, we hear from two distinguished gentlemen who will share their thoughts on many things, including the current state of the world with the crisis in Ukraine, energy security and the reconfiguration of supply chains, how Asia is better equipped to meet today's geopolitical and economic challenges, and also new opportunities in the fintech and digitization space. Michael Sin is Senior Managing Director and Head of Equities at SGX Group. He has management responsibility for SGX's equity businesses, including the stock market, depository and futures market. Market. And Mike led the exchange's successful derivatives business in equities, foreign exchange and commodities, and has a background in investment banking and investment management. Joining him is Taro Kono, a major political figure in Japan who has held a number of ministerial appointments in the Japanese government, including defense, foreign affairs, administrative reform and regulatory reform, as well as vaccine promotion. And he's currently director of the LDP's public affairs department and chair of the Singapore-Japan Parliamentary Friendship League. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Justine. And I just wanted to, I think, build on what Justine had mentioned about Kono-san's distinguished career, having served in the great offices of the land, and I believe having inherited this tradition of service, both his father and uncle were also very prominent in public service in Japan. As you mentioned, he's a great Asian internationalist. I believe he's got more followers on Twitter than we probably have voting adults in Singapore. So that does say something about the thought leadership that he has exhibited over this period of COVID. He was the vaccine czar, and I dare say that Japan has been a shining light for how to live with and adapt to the COVID period over the past two years. So I typically find that in the conversations that we've had with many customers and, and partners in recent weeks and months, it's been the five C's, COVID, crypto, China, carbon, cloud, I think we can leave COVID out of the way. That's really hopefully last year's story. And we can focus now on crypto, China, carbon cloud. And perhaps I could just toss the opening ball to Kono-san, who's expressed, I think, very founded opinions on many matters, but importantly also on the future of Web 3.0 in Japan. Kono-san, the founder and inventor of Bitcoin, the mythical Satoshi Nakamoto, do you have him in your custody in Japan? Because we can't find him. Well, I wish we could find him and in Japan. Well, we don't know where he is and he is still legendary, but we are building a whole new world on his thesis. Japan is trying to move on to Web3. 
but I guess we need to deregulate a lot of things. We need to change our tax code as a lot of Japanese startups are now moving to Singapore because of our rigid tax code on NFT and crypto. So as a politician, I have a lot of things to do in order to get Satoshi moving back to Japan, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Kono-san, perhaps you can get us up to speed because none of us have had the opportunity to travel to Tokyo in the past two years, even for the Olympics, which I was so greatly looking forward to. And I know very much that my friends in Tokyo were working very hard on a few measures for a grand opening of Fin City Tokyo, the idea that the Olympics represented a sustained effort to create the next generation of a financial hub based around Tokyo, together with incentives, as you've mentioned. Is that measure still in place? Is that ambition still in place? Oh, yes. We have been talking about International Financial Center in Tokyo for so many times, and we are still talking about it. As of now, because of the COVID, we still close the border. But once we get rid of this COVID-19, we are hoping to establish a new financial center. We are looking at Hong Kong because of the tighter grip on Hong Kong. It would be very difficult for financial institution to continue business in Hong Kong. So I think Tokyo is competing with Singapore, how to get the financial institution out of Hong Kong to come to Tokyo, well, hopefully, once we get rid of COVID-19, many financial institutions start moving to Tokyo. But we need to do a lot of groundwork. Some years ago, because we prohibit English-speaking nannies, uh. a lot of employees of the international financial institution refused to come to Tokyo, and we had to change the rule. So there are a lot of things we need to fix it. But one day we are hoping to catch up with Singapore. <laughs> Good to hear. Kono-san, just while we're on that theme, talk about the future of fintech now in Japan. I mean, China's so big. Three years ago, your fintech market size was estimated around 3.2 billion US dollars. I know that digital payments seems to be the market's largest segment. So another new opportunity for Japan. We are still you can say cash lovers. There are a lot of cash transaction in the city, even during the COVID. But uh, we are moving into plastic money, crypto, and a lot of new fintech things. So the government is trying to push the private sector into the next level of fintech. Yes, we are trying to invite more foreign people coming to Japan until COVID hit us. So we are trying to get ready. And once we open the door, we are hoping to get more engineers, more experts come to Japan, start working for the Japanese, working with startups in Japan. And we are very much looking forward to those days. So Konosan, I do recall that it was a relatively recent thing where certainly in banking, 
a number of senior teams had moved from Tokyo to Hong Kong. This was a mix of, I guess, some of the uncertainty post the Fukushima disaster, as well as some of the increase of importance in Chinese capital markets. To some extent, I think you have seen this as well, the mood of individuals and families and thoughts about how do I work from the office? How do I work from home? We certainly have seen people who've traveled to Singapore and have said that actually Japan makes a great deal of sense. Tokyo makes a great deal of sense. It is, after all, still more closely situated to North Asia than Singapore is. And Asia is a very large place or will be after the reopening. Do you think that in this respect, when Justine mentioned the two-year experience of digitalization that Japan had, for instance, removing the need to have a hanko for everything that was necessary over the past two years, do you think that the yen starts becoming an important asset for financial Japan to deploy? It is a well-supported currency. It is a flight-to-quality currency. It has a very considerable free float. Could it not be used more internationally? And of course, I asked this question in the context of what we've seen in the past three, four weeks, the so-called weaponization of the financial system and the U.S. dollar. Yes. Back in 1980s, when the Japanese economy was very strong, our finance ministry was not willing to internationalize yen. They are afraid of losing control over yen. But right now, we are pushing to spread the yen all over the world. What we saw in Ukraine, I think United States or NATO are not willing to get into a direct fight against Russia. I don't think democracy will be willing to actually physically going into fight with any other countries. Instead, we are more trying to use economy or currency to suffocate the others. So we're going to be using economy, supply chain, finance, currency to fight against the dictatorship. So I think Japan needs to be prepared for it. And in order to do that, how are we going to deal with yen as a global currency? is very important. Mm. And with the U.S. Federal Reserve, of course, raising rates, it has weakened against the dollar. The Bank of Japan governor has indicated he's not too bothered at the moment, Kono-san. What's your take on that? Yes. Unfortunately, Bank of Japan is not ready to follow FRB. Number one, the government debt has increased drastically in last decade. It is very difficult for Bank of Japan and the government. Number two, quite a few consumers, quite a few homeowners are now getting mortgage on a variable rate. So if Bank of Japan raises the interest rate, we might see some kind of financial crisis. So BOJ is not a fit to deal with uh, interest rate. It is very unfortunate. There is a very strong belief among the Japanese industry, weak yen is good for the Japanese economy. I think it is a wrong, I think it is definitely a wrong belief. And we need to change the mind of management of large corporation. Once yen get weaker, 
the profit that, say, Toyota or Sony received from outside of Japan, when converted into yen, it sort of get bigger and their stock price goes up accordingly. But it's only just a few major global companies. The rest suffered from weak yen because whatever we import, energy, food, price goes up. And Japan's aging, and there are quite a few people who are living on pension, which is a fixed income. When yen slides down, the food price, energy price go up, and they suffer. So we need to have a different mindset. A stronger yen would be better. But for now, Bank of Japan is not ready to raise the interest rate. So we need to bear with weaker yen for some short-time basis. Kono-san, if I perhaps could extend your analysis, if you were sitting in the shoes of the PBOC governor, much of what you've said holds true in some parallel, in some analog to China. They are, after all, importing. They also have a rapidly aging population. They face many of these considerations. How would then the Chinese government think about its stated mission of internationalizing the RMB in the face of these constraints? Well, I have a mixed take because now the Chinese Communist Party is squeezing their industry, their IT business, their technology business, which have been so successful, is now put under the pressure. I think Chinese Communist Party is preferring to have more, let's say, fair economy. The common prosperity, I think they call it. Yeah, that's right. Everyone should be more equal. So it's quite different from what Deng Xiaoping said some decades ago. Those who can become rich go first, and they will raise the rest. I think what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do is quite opposite. So they're hitting Alibaba and other Chinese company. And uh, I'm not quite sure if that is a good strategy, but they are now looking at Asian population. I think they're, because of their one-child policy, their speed of aging is much faster than ours. So we'll see in two, three decades from now. Indeed, the demographic peak. is going to be yes. quite different. Indeed. Mm. I guess this takes us inevitably, and you are an acute student of this, having studied in the U.S. in Georgetown and known much for the foreign policy establishment in the U.S. It takes us back a little to what is the origin or the root of this hegemony that the U.S. dollar seems to have? Because implicitly your conclusion is, for now, despite RMB ambitions, we are not displacing U.S. dollar as the international currency of trade, the flight to quality currency. It's relatively recent history from the time of the uh, post the Second World War, from the time of the euro dollar to the petrodollar, I guess, accommodation to the benevolence in some ways of the US in choosing to borrow from the rest of the world and therefore create a pool of US dollars offshore. And in so doing, and in, I guess, encouraging the terms of trade through the WTO for China entering it, to encouraging the terms of trade to use the US dollar as the sovereign currency of Pax Americana, what is it that would need to happen for this to be fragmented? We're seeing 
either a Cold War or a balkanization of economic systems coming up, do we still assume that the US dollar stands as the champion and therefore control of global capital sits in US hands? The United States need to be careful so that they can maintain the status of the dollar. When we were discussing sanction against Iran, the United States government was trying to go very far. And I remember talking to Secretary of State Pompeo. We need to be careful because Iran could switch to something else from dollar to sell their oil. They could always use renminbi to deal with China. Many other countries may prefer to use renminbi. So petrodollar, like right now Russia, Iran, they could break away from dollar and we need to be careful. Number two, China is trying to use digital renminbi. When they lend the money to African countries, they could prefer to lend the money in digital renminbi and they would encourage those African nations or other country who borrow money from China to settle in digital renminbi. That could affect US dollars. Mm -hmm. And we also agree among G7 to remove Russian financial institution from SWIFT. SWIFT is one of the arms to keep the sovereignty of dollar. If we start removing those dictatorship from SWIFT, they can use Chinese system. And then if that is more convenient, in conjunction with digital renminbi, the relative strengths of dollar could slide down. So we need to be very careful when we use economic method against the dictatorship to control in lieu of physical forces. So dollar is not an absolute. We need to be very careful how to use U.S. dollars. That's a very... Yeah, because you, you mention it as using it as a weapon when it involves something like Swift, Connor's son. But how about the use of finance or capital as a bridge building tool? For example, the China's Belt and Road Initiative. So instead of as a weapon, as a bridge building tool is a good thing. We see like in Sri Lanka, the very famous incident of Port of Hambantota. Sri Lanka borrowed quite a few money from China to develop the port. But when this business plan didn't materialize, China simply took over the control of the port for 99 years. It's just like what happened in Hong Kong and the opposite of that. So Belt and Road sound good at the beginning, but if you really look into it, in reality, they're using money, they're using loan as a weapon. They are using that to squeeze the other country. So this wasn't constructed in your mind, the equivalent of a new Marshall Plan or Colombo Plan. Do you think it was an, a badly constructed policy? Well, where stand from Chinese point of view, it is to expand their influence in Africa or in Asia using their financial capability. If you're a borrower, 
You saw it is a very good financial idea, but you ended up losing control of your infrastructure. You build a grid, you build a port, you build a highway or railway. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to control your own infrastructure because interest rate is so high, you borrow too much, and the revenue was not meeting the target. So if you're a borrower side, it is certainly not a new Marshall Plan. Konosan, do you think Asia today is better equipped to meet today's geopolitical and economic challenges? Perhaps should Japan play a bigger political role when it comes to the region? Yes, we are seeing what's going on in Ukraine and what U.S. and NATO are doing. In Asia, there is no organization like NATO I think we need to think of something, you know, the collective security institution. Japan always talk about our constitution, Article 9. Well, we're not going to be able to come and help you. But in reality, if something happened in Asia, we need to have everyone's support in Asia. So we need to change our posture in Japan. We need to go more global. We need to pay more attention to global security. And I think we need to develop some kind of new NATO-type organization. Maybe Quad is just the beginning. Asia is very different from Europe. We are not as close to Europe or we're not really homogeneous region. But uh, I think we need to create some kind of regional organization. It used to be haven't spoke. United States have so many bilateral agreements for security. And during the Cold War, it worked. But now China is getting larger and larger, stronger and stronger. Haven't spokes wouldn't work. We need some kind of regional architecture in Asia. And we are in a turning point. So the world is not flat, as perhaps some politicians or historians would have had us believe. I mean, if we wind ourselves back just to the late 90s, we had Thomas Friedman with his McDonald's peace theory. I think he called it the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict, which stated that two countries with McDonald's would never go to war together. I mean, of course, that's proven not to be true since Belgrade had a McDonald's. I think Azerbaijan certainly had McDonald's, and Russia and Ukraine both have McDonald's. So the peace dividend that was once dreamed of, Konosan, do you think that that ideal, that peace dividend, that has now come to an end, and we now need to spend to rearm, as Germany seems to have been doing? I studied in Poland back in 1984, and I thought this communism would last for so many years to come. But I was so surprised when the wall of Berlin fell down in 1989, and I thought we will get the peace dividend. The Cold War is over. Everyone will be uh, more happier, more peaceful, more wealthy. But it didn't turn out that way. And now this invasion of Ukraine, the McDonald's theory has come to an end and everyone is trying to build up their arsenal. Well, we have been spending, our defense spending for the last 20 years were almost flat, where 
everyone else, China, South Korea, Australia, India, everyone is trying to increase the defense spending. I think Japan need to open up our, our eyes and we need to be prepared for a whole new world. Unfortunately, that seems to be the reality right now. So, Kono-san, perhaps I could now test your opinions on what's happening in America on this matter. So I picked up a few quotes from an FT article a few days ago from a handful of Republican senators, quoting Senator Tom Cotton, a traditional Republican. He is pushing back against globalization. The free flow of capital, which was once elevated to almost a core principle, is now seeing a conversation that China should be the exception. So a quote from Tom Cotton, America ought to ban U.S. investment in strategic Chinese industries, encourage reshoring of U.S. factories and jobs, and punishing offshoring to China, as well as scrutinizing and regulating Chinese investment in America more closely. We hear similar things from Senator Marco Rubio. Do you think these are fringe voices representing perhaps the tail end of what we saw in the previous presidency? Or do you think that this might be, in fact, a trend we need to watch out very closely for? Because some of these sanctions have already been in place. We had executive orders from the Trump White House, which today still denies the chief executive of Hong Kong a bank account. What we saw in Ukraine is quite different from U.S. engagement in Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya. I think democratic countries are less willing to take up guns and get into the real war fighting. The cost of the war is damaging to any democratic government. So what we saw in Ukraine is instead of establishing no-fly zone like U.S. did in Iraq or Libya, I think we prefer to use economic sanction against Russia. So I think the first preference for democratic country in case of some crisis is to use economy instead of armed forces. So in reality, in Asia, China, especially when Xi Jinping re-elected to the party leader for his third term, he definitely wants to be equal to Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping by reuniting Taiwan. So he may be looking at Taiwan, but he's very careful what international community does to Putin. If we don't react strong enough, it would send the wrong message to Xi Jinping and he might try to reunite Taiwan with forces. So if China tried to move on to Taiwan, I think global community would like to use economic tools before we start sending forces to the region. So supply chain is gonna be critical. We do not want to be relying on China too much. We didn't have enough masks at the beginning of the COVID because most of the masks we imported from China and we didn't have enough. So it may be clever 
to move out of China for the sake of supply chains. If we continue to invest in China and rely on China, if something happens, if we try to put economic sanction on China, we get hurt more than China does. And that'll be counterproductive. So I think from now on, global community need to look at China strategy, how much we should invest to divest from China. Japan or United States alone couldn't do it because once the U.S. move out of China, if some other country tried to fill the void, it wouldn't mean anything. So global community need to coordinate China strategy, how much we should remove our supply chain from China, how much we should establish supply chain of critical things like medication or energy or foodstuff or things. So that's something we need to look at. And if we decided to move something out of China, say we need to invest in Vietnam or we need to start investing in Indonesia, Thailand, or India, or we may want to bring something back to Japan. So we need to increase our investment in Asia for that sake. So Kono-san, you have touched on something which is of the utmost importance to all macro investors and businessmen and merchants across the world. And there's a lot to unpack here because effectively what you're saying is that in the absence of a kinetic conflict, the disappearance of the peace dividend happens in many ways, the reversal of globalization, possibly the RCEP. I'd love to get your views on whether it's worth pursuing that. But you have spoken before about the full spectrum defense that's needed against disinformation, cyber intrusions, culture war on the EM spectrum, and now molecules of oil and gas and coal and even supply chains for medicines. How is it possible for all countries to adapt to their own security while still leading to the economic peace between nations, the trade between nations? If we could have free trade, the more globalization, global economy will grow much faster. But as we see what happening in Ukraine, or we have seen China using economy as weapons. You probably recall China imported Norwegian salmon. And if Norway did something angered Xi Jinping, they simply shut it down. They did similar thing to banana from the Philippines or iron ore from Australia. So China has been using supply chain and economy as weapons. They are trying to get others depend on China or Chinese market, and they use that as a weapon. So we need to be prepared to defend our economy. So it is quite unfortunate that we need to move away from a real free market, real globalization. We need to think of some kind of backup, which is less efficient, but that's other form of cost we need to pay to keep the global peace and stability. 
So Connor Sun, just referring to your previous answer then, will we see you have more of a presence here economically in Southeast Asia? You mentioned Thailand, you mentioned Vietnam and also Indonesia. Yes, hopefully. Japan used to go global back in 1980s. And then for some reasons, we have been very much inward looking. Our domestic economy is shrinking because the population is not growing. So the Japanese economy need to go global. And I think Asia will be our number one target. I think we need to encourage our industry to go Asia and beyond, Middle East, Africa. I think Korea or even China moving to Africa much faster than Japan. And that we, we have been lagging behind. So we need to encourage our industry to look outside of Japan and take more risks, be more brave, and try to benefit from the growth of new economies. Well, Kona-san, in the language, as you mentioned earlier, of managed trade versus free trade, I should speak in favor of ASEAN, where we do not seem to have changed our minds quite as quickly. We're still on a very, very slow 30-year journey towards further economic integration at a manageable pace. It is a very considerable economic area that has perhaps fewer vulnerabilities in total supply chain in the sense that internal trade within ASEAN can account for many of the needs that various countries have. And Japan has always had a deep and early investment in ASEAN. You yourself, for example, were based in Singapore for a number of years in a commercial role. Japan, I know, has spent quite considerable time cultivating Myanmar, in Vietnam, in Thailand, and in Laos and Cambodia. Do you see this now becoming a foreign policy as well as a defense imperative to deepen economic and cultural ties, to strengthen these as a matter of economic defense? Yes. In Japan, in 1980s to 90s, we spent quite a few foreign aid. We spent quite a few foreign aid to Asian infrastructure and those things. But uh, the Japanese, I think it's not the time for the government to provide aid to Asian countries. It's more like business provide investment to Asia. I think Asian economy has grown to the next level. So I think Japan and Asian economy need to work together and flourish together. And in order to do that, I don't think the government should sit in the driver's seat. Its business community need to take this steering. And I think it's business-centered investment that get Japan and ASEAN economy, economic ties stronger. So we need to move out of the government into private sector to work together with Asian people. So on the business wing, that does make complete sense that it ought to be left to the mercantile capabilities of the country to expand abroad. But when it comes to the role of government, I guess Japan, like Singapore, has a very stubborn cost factor, which is energy security. And in the presence of all the commitments that we've made towards a net zero economy, do you think that all this complexity and conflict will lead us to throw up our hands and say, it is simply not possible for island nations with no natural resources 
to be leaders in the pack to give up gas, to give up coal, to give up consumption? I think carbon neutral by 2050 is possible. Our technology is moving forward. I think it was simply the Japanese government have had the wrong policy for so many years. Once we had our number one photovoltaic industry, the turn of the century, but METI wrongly tried to promote a nuclear power instead of the renewable because of the vested interest. And now we see the mistakes of it. So we are now slowly moving out of nuclear and trying to invest more in the renewable. Unfortunately, when we try to make a turn, there's no Japanese photovoltaic company left, no Japanese manufacturer doing wind turbine left. But we still work with foreign companies to promote those renewable energies. And a new type of photovoltaic is coming out of the research institutions. We still have very strong geothermal energy. I think definitely in order to keep this planet going for many more centuries to come, we definitely need to move out of the fossil uh, going to renewable we have enough technology to do it. So I'm very optimistic in that field. So perhaps I could test that just a little more. We just had a statement from a government official a couple of days ago saying that, in fact, Singapore is investigating the possibilities of the next generation of small-scale nuclear generation, which I guess once upon a time would have been almost impossible to contemplate for political reasons and for the layman's understanding that we're in an earthquake zone as well in in Singapore. Do you think the post-Fukushima consensus that Japan is not suitable for nuclear power installations, do you think that this calculation may change in the future? Because Japan still does have considerable nuclear engineering capability. Yes, there are still some people who talk about the small, more modern nuclear reactors or things. But think about it. Nuclear power plant has become so expensive. Well, because of Fukushima, the safety requirement is going up and the cost of building nuclear power is up and up. So it is no longer the cheapest source of energy, it's quite expensive. And if large-scale nuclear power is not economical, smaller-scale plant would be less economical. So it is a nice challenge for engineers, but I don't think it's going to be efficient. We still need to take care of the spent fuel Large plant, small plant, it's same. We still need to deal with spent fuel. And Japan has no place to deal with the spent fuel yet. So instead of talking about challenges, we have already established technology for isolating the house or pulling a rooftop solar or other established technology already here. Why don't we try to maximize those technology instead of talking technology which yet to come? 
Konasan, I just want to fast forward to 2025. Let's just do a scenario here. The world's investors are focused on emerging markets, China, India, and Southeast Asia. Just say you were Prime Minister of Japan. Give us your pitch for Japan. Well, thank you. Japan is still world third biggest economy. If I were Prime Minister, we would be making complete reform of the Japanese economy. So it would be a good place to invest and Japanese company will be moving into Asian market or more into the global market. So I think our private sector would be a good place to work with for next development. That sounds a very compelling vision. And of course, we look forward to this eventuality coming through, but hopefully at some stage in, in person as well. Mm. Uh, at that stage, hypothetically in the year 2025, when you are the Prime Minister of Japan, will you still have time for the many hobbies that you seem to be able to sustain in your busy life? My colleagues were in Tokyo were telling me that you are the patron of at least three or four sports associations, as well as of the Japanese Durian Growers Association. <laughs> well, my team in my hometown, Shonan Belmare, once the Asia champion back in 1990s and uh, we are rebuilding well the club went bankrupt and i had to take care of that we are still rebuilding and hopefully it will go back to acl sometime soon hopefully and my friend is trying to grow durian in okinawa <laughs> i heard the durian price in singapore is going up and hopefully we can start exporting Japan-made durian to Singapore, talking about starting out with Musan King. <laughs> One day we will come up with super ultra Musan King made in Japan. So It has been a great difficulty over COVID because as you might imagine in Singapore, we favor the Malaysian durian. We do favor the Mao San Wang or the Musan King, as well as the many other hybrids. But with the causeway shut, it was a very difficult supply chain challenge. And I'm speaking as a small-scale durian farmer in Malaysia, it brought home the very real nature of climate change. Because once upon a time, all of Johor had the same climate in the sense that all the durians would fruit together and flower together. Mm. But in the past two years, this has started bifurcating. So what's also happened is that our durian season has now spread. So there's less available at any time, but it's available for a longer time. And all these challenges seem to have led to a very sustained pricing for durian. And knowing Japan's well-practiced example of premium fruit pricing, I do not imagine the Okinawan durian will be targeting the bottom of the market. Rather, it'll be trying to break the 200,000 yen price. Uh, I once saw 100,000 yen durian in Yaohan or something like that. Wow. Beautifully wrapped as it only could be in Japan. Well, we look forward to having some Japan durian over here in Singapore, I can tell you. Gentlemen, I do have to ask you both this question, though. I know we're early into 2022, but Mike, let's just go first with you before I ask uh, Konosan. Your wish list for the rest of 2022. Wish list number one, we need to get rid of COVID because of the third vaccine shot in Japan. 
I think the number of the new patients slowly, slowly going down, and we are a bit afraid of BA2 coming to spread. But hopefully by summer, we can get rid of the COVID and open the border. So I've been talking to friends in Singapore, and they've been going to the Japanese restaurant in Singapore instead of uh, coming to Japan. So we hope to have you back in Japan. And that's something I would like to see in the second half of this year. I would echo Konosan's wish. Two years is too long to have people not be able to meet face to face because fundamentally we're still tribal animals. And I cannot help feeling that some of the heat in the conflict that we've seen necessarily caused by economic difficulties and historical misunderstandings could have been better managed with face-to-face -face contact. I hope that the nature of the conflict that we're seeing in the world, still distant from here, remains cold. I hope that this is more like a reboot of globalization that we're seeing here post-COVID rather than the beginning of a period like in the 1930s, where we really have to start rethinking mm. the way we manage our lives. So my number one hope, if it doesn't sound corny like Miss Universe, is peace to mankind. You've been listening to episode two of our Thought Leadership podcast series, Growth Track, where we focus on growth opportunities across Asia. This episode featured Mike Sin, head of equities SGX Group, and Taro Kono, a major political figure in Japan who has held a number of ministerial appointments in the Japanese government. I'm Justine Moss. Thank you for listening, and thank you, gentlemen. 